The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code, the Gist. And buy Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 7th, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. Supreme Court's in session. One of the first cases was Carol Sachs v. OBB Pussenverker. Pussenverker an Austrian firm, and Carol Sachs was trying to catch a train in Austria, in Innsbruck. It was a moving train. She was unsuccessful. She was crushed by the train. She lost her legs. Now, the court is looking at the question of if she can sue in an American court because there is an open question. And I've been reading all the analysis of if Carol Sachs can sue this train in Austria because she bought the ticket through a third party operating out of Massachusetts. So the court is looking at previous decisions like Daimler v. Bauman, and they're looking at like when the Ninth Circuit judged on whether victims of Argentina's dirty war can sue in a California court. And big issues like whether for purposes of determining when an entity is an agent of a foreign state under the first clause of the commercial activity exemption of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. I got that from SCOTUS blog. This is what they're debating. Now, Noah Feldman in Bloomberg notes, being an American, Sachs sued OBB, the Australian rail company, in a federal court in California. Now, I think he meant being an American is that's what her nationality is. So that's why she sued in America. But I read the being an American differently. I'm not mocking Carol Sachs. Obviously, what happened to her is tragic. But don't you think, I'm no expert on the law, but sure, whether this entity is an agent of a foreign state under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, great question. Here's another question. When you try to get on a moving train, is it the train's fault if you fall underneath? Is it the person who sold you the ticket's fault that you fell underneath a moving train? I know a lot of movies, we got to catch that train. You throw your bag on the train first, then you hop on the train. None of them show what happens if you fail to hop on the train and go underneath the train. Trains are very heavy. Maybe we should sue Hollywood for never depicting the leg-crushing properties of a train. Anyway, I do have to say, if you think I'm going on a little bit of a the justices are out of control rant. All of the justices, even Breyer, who is very much in favor of looking at what foreign courts have to say and applying those decisions to the United States, seemed very, very skeptical of Carol Sachs. Now, maybe it was for the closed and limited reasons of, are you a foreign state? Is this the Foreign Sovereignties Immune Act? Maybe they didn't get into the question of, you know, the train was moving, but I think eventually justice will be served. Now, what I'm going to serve you today is a part of a live show. We did the live show last week. I'm not going to play you the entire live show, just the pertinent parts. Now, remember, this was taped uh, a week and a day ago. So we're going to hear from 538 poll guru Harry Enten. Now, let me set the tone. Let me set the time. Let me bring you back to a week and a day ago. Back then, Donald Trump off-hinged New York developer was at the top of the polls. So try to keep that in mind and join us now as Harry Enten talks 
about the state of the race. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. One part of that no-win is going to the post office. Not really a win. The other part is leasing a postage meter. Definitely not a win. I'll give you a win at Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer, and you can get special discounts you can't find at the post office. I've spoken about this before. There is a reason for that. It is this. There are no discounts at the post office. That was once the motto of the post office. It was in Latin. They changed it out to that dark a night thing with the sleet and the carriers and the appointed rounds. It's from a Greek poet. There's no equivalent Greek poetry saying no discounts, but it's true. No discounts at the post office. With stamps.com, you got something more powerful than a postage meter, and it's at a fraction of the cost. You could save at least 50% compared to that postage meter that you're not going to get. Of course, you're going to do stamps.com. You sign up for stamps.com and use the promo code The Gist for a special offer a four week trial, $110 bonus offer. It includes postage in a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in The Gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter the gist. (laughs) All right, let's talk about presidential politics, which means we're going to talk about Donald Trump. You've heard of him, right? Are there any land, when you look at the polls, you're a polling expert. Are there, we could, we all have our conception of why Trump might be a phenomenon that sticks. You know, my theory was Maybe you heard it. There are a lot of stupid people in America that can help them. None in this audience, though. Right. Um, Then again, you have David Mamet wrote a very compelling article about the first act is always about the promise. And then when it comes time to see if the promise pays off, uh, you could do when it comes time to see if the promise pays off. It sometimes fizzles. Basically, Mamet says anyone can write an interesting first act. Scott Walker might disagree. But are there, are there any landmines in the polling about Trump that we should know about? Sure. So what I did before this, because we had this conversation of what I talk about up, up here, mm-hmm. um, I decided to look at uh, Trump's net favorability numbers. That is the number of Republicans, the percentage of Republicans who have a favorable view of him, subtracted by the percentage of Republicans who had an unfavorable view. And it turns out that his net favorability is about 12.8 in an average of four polls since the debate. I think that's the decimal point. I don't want to, you yeah. know, someone to fact check and then it's all wrong. And it was 12.7. You'd be pulled from the stage like in Showtime at the Apollo with the cane if you get the decimal wrong. So mm-hmm. good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so his was only 12.8 with, I think, a 90.4% name recognition. And based upon a regression of past nominees. Ooh, I like that phrase. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I bring the statistics, baby. You yeah. bring the humor. <laughs> So, so essentially, if you run that regression, you see that Trump is running about three standard deviations below where past nominees have in the modern era. Three standard deviations below. He's doing far worse on net favorability than you would expect. Much, much worse. It's because of his unfavorables are so high. That, that's correct. So yeah. that his favorable rating is at about, you know, like... 50% or Is 50- that about where the front runner usually is? 50% favorable? Uh, no, I mean, it, it, it depends. You know, we've had some nominees who are not very well known at this point, like a Michael Dukakis or a Bill Clinton. You have some nominees who were very well known at this point, someone like a Ronald Reagan or a Fritz Mondale. Um, so it depends. So we have to take into account both the name recognition 
and the net favorability. And what we see is Trump is universally well-known, yeah. but he's not very well-liked. Versus, say, someone like a Hillary Clinton, who is actually very well-liked, despite what you would hear in the, in the media sometimes. She has about the same name recognition as Trump, but her net favorability is somewhere around 50, uh, plus 50 percentage points. Plus 50 versus plus 12. Yeah, I'd say wow. that's a slight difference. You know, my statistics indicate that. Are there other... <laughs> well, 12.8, we should say. Are right, there I'm other sorry. Rep- are there other, other Republicans where... No other Republican is beating Trump, but are there others where the net favorability is higher? I would say that there are a lot of Republicans. That net, pick, pick a name, and I'm sure we can find one. Bobby Jindal. Sure. I believe Bobby Jindal really? actually Bobby is. Jindal. Wow. I, you're, you're trashing Bobby Jindal. What did he ever do to you? I, I happen to be uh, an unborn baby. and No. At one point, I was. He doesn't... Well, we all were. Yeah. Um, so... The other thing you said is three standard deviations away from what the Republicans... Explain that in layman's terms. Sure. So essentially, we'd expect his um, his net favorability to be up where Clinton's is, you know, plus 50. Yeah. And we, of course, deal with a, a standard deviation, you know, a margin of error. And usually the margin of error in, error in polls is plus or minus two standard deviations. So Trump is well outside of the margin of error at this point. He's, he's so hated. He's so, ha- he's so hated. Even among Republicans. R- right. I mean, you know, there are some sane Republicans, just as there are some insane Democrats. I yeah. know that this is a Brooklyn crowd. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to lose the crowd right now, but, you know. So, so this shows up. I think that there are some polls where they say, what about second choice? Ben Carson does well in second choice. Trump doesn't do well in second choice. Uh, that's sort of like the net, exactly what you're talking about. Another way to get at the fact that he has a lot of unfavorability is the fact that he's very few people's second choice. Right. I mean, and then you get a third choice. I mean, there, there are enough Republicans running right now to form a conga line. So, you know. Fun conga line. Uh, we, yeah. we can join the conga line if you want afterwards. Everyone in the audience is invited. <laughs> Check under your seats the invitation to the conga line. <laughs> so, you know, it's second and third choice. But I mean, right now, most of the recent polling does actually have him falling behind on first plus second choice. Other candidates are ahead of him, including Carly Fiorina and Ben Carson. Of course, I don't think either one of them will win the nomination um, either. Although there seems to be one or two people out there yeah, who, yeah, who, yeah. who like Carly. Apparently, they sold Hewlett Packard stock at the right time. <laughs> they timed the market. Are there any Republicans? So we talked about landmines. Are there any uh, Easter eggs? Are there any numbers in the polls of some Republicans who may be, you know, just barely in double digits or even lower? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the gold mine, if I'm looking for him right now, is Marco Rubio. Okay. Uh, what about him? What when the numbers? Well, if you look at his net favorability numbers, they're about plus 50 with a name recognition only at about 75%, depending on the poll. So he's actually doing better among Republicans on net favorability than Clinton's doing among Democrats. Hmm. And we've seen his numbers slowly rise after the last few debates. I mean, he's, he's somebody who is very well put together, seems like he's ready to debate. He's also Hispanic, um, although, you know, he's not Mexican-Hispanic, he's Cuban-Hispanic. Um, so he might not reach out to them, but a number of Republican voters who might say, oh, we need to get Hispanic voters, might see his name and might say, hey, Hispanic, Hispanic, that sounds yeah. good to me. So you're saying he might not actually appeal to Hispanics, but he might appeal to Republicans who want to appeal to Hispanics. That, that's exactly right. It's all yeah. about show, not about performance. <laughs> I think Marco Rubio has done well in all the debates. The only criticisms of his on the campaign, he didn't answer the question about is his fishing boat a pleasure craft or a fishing boat. It wasn't that great. He's got a Miami Dolphin cheerleader wife. Don't know how that plays. But 
It does. Yeah, it hurt. does seem to me that what he's doing is drafting off the lead. I don't know. People say you don't want to peak too early. I don't know. I say in some cases, just do as good as you can. But he does seem pretty well positioned for when the balloons like Trump come down to earth. He'll be right there. I I think that's exactly. He's playing the long game. He's seen Jeb Bush sort of rise early and then drop off. He saw Scott Walker not really rise at all and then just drop off. Yeah. Um, But let me ask you about Scott Walker. So Scott Walker left the race. I think it was somewhat a surprise. If you look at the, the money... He's not a rich man. Even though his PAC, super PAC, was raising money, personally, the campaign kind of got ahead of itself. It had way too many employees to fund. But just on the fact that he was polling, you know, at an asterisk at 1%, as a pollster, as a polling expert, would you say, you know what, that alone is dispositive. If you're not at 1%, if you're not at 2%, even this early, you should get out. Would the polls alone dictate that, do you uh, think? Uh, you have to realize we're dealing with a small sample size. To me, it doesn't indicate that. Remember, Jimmy Carter was polling at about 1% for most of 1975 and then went on to win the Democratic I nomination. I do remember that, but you don't. You weren't alive. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but you read, I understand. On days off in weather camp, you read about the 75 election. Don't worry. By the time you die and I'm still alive, we'll be in pretty good shape. (laughs) Zing. (laughs) Your unfavorability ratings are going through the roof, Harry. (laughs) Okay, so, so... Uh, right, so Jimmy Carter was doing bad in 75. Yeah. Right, but, his, but Walker's net favorability ratings were still significantly higher than Trump's were. But the problem was his campaign just didn't have any money. And if you can't keep the lights on, you're probably not going to be able to keep a campaign going. I hope you paid the bills tonight. Yeah. You guys Seems paid to be the working. Bills. So the last thing I want to ask you is I've been reading a couple things. Again, back to Trump. Um, Huff Polster, which is pretty good. What's his name? Mark Blumenthal. I interned for Mark, so I have to say nice things about him. Okay. So he came out with an article that said, you know, we might actually be underreporting how many people support Trump because people are saying they don't support him because they don't think it's socially acceptable. And yet in their gut, they like him. I guess you'd call this something like the reverse Brady effect. Bradley. Bradley, sorry, it's yeah, fine. Bill Brady. Keep yeah. going. Well, the other thing about me getting the Bradley effect wrong is there is no Bradley effect. But the idea is that people lie to pollsters based on what's socially acceptable. So let's put that out there on one hand. Maybe people are telling pollsters they won't vote for Trump, but in your heart they know you know he's right, something like that. Then on the other sure. hand, we've seen this idea that they're oversampling the Trump voters. These People say they're likely voters, but they're just reality TV show fans. Any good evidence on either side of that argument? Uh, sure. So Civis Analytics, which is a Democratic sort of number shop, uh, polled specifically registered Republican voters. And they saw that Trump's numbers were sp- much lower among those that they knew were registered voters. They had the list, you know, this whole thing of where you voted, who you voted, blah, 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 blah. And they showed that his numbers were significantly lower. Versus you said the other thing, which was, you know, oh, some of, the, some of these people might be ashamed to that they would want to vote for Trump. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm going to vote for Trump. No, <laughs> I'm not going to vote for Trump. Um, uh, yeah, maybe. But the thing we, we have to recognize is poll survey after poll survey. And what I mean by that is studies of polls show that the polls that are showing Trump at the lowest point right now have been the most accurate. Okay. Not the ones that have have him the highest. So I don't, I, you know, are people ashamed that they're going to vote for Trump? I mean, if you're already going to be choosing Trump, are you really smart enough to be able to be ashamed of it? 
And if I know one thing about the American people, shame is not an overriding emotion. It's, it's certainly not for me. <laughs> Harry Enten, ladies and gentlemen. When does shaving get so expensive? Ah, uh, I say the time was when I was 13. It's when I started shaving. Actually, I used to hack up my face with a horrible, I won't throw out the brand, but they also make pens, all right? To give you some idea what I was putting on my face. Then we graduate and they make a little better razor and then they add a blade and add a blade and add a blade. Now they got 12 blades, but they cost 12 bucks and they last a couple weeks. So yeah, maybe your face won't get killed, but your wallet will. Enter Harry's Razors. Harry's Razors is started by two guys who care about creating a better shaving experience. And the important thing is it won't break the bank. It's a superior shave. They have a blade factory in Germany. They cut out the middleman as only a shaving company can. And they're passing the savings along to you. How much so? Their starter kit is $15. You get the razor. The handle itself has won awards. You get three blades and a choice of the shave cream or the foaming gel. Guys, I gotta say, I'm getting into the foaming gel. Go to harrys.com and harrys will give you $5 off if you type in my code just with your first purchase, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter coupon code just at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. Next on stage, well, there was some stuff in the middle. There was some hilarious, hilarious stuff that is only available to the live show audience. It was kind of visual. Also, it was highly sensitive, and everyone at the live show signed a non-disclosure, so I can't play it for you. But after Harry left, we were joined by Adam Davidson. Adam, you know him. He's the founder of NPR's Planet Money. He currently writes about economic issues for the New York Times magazine. And he is also, as you will hear, a son of the stage. Okay, Adam, I want to talk to you about something that... I think it might be the most important issue in America today. And yet it's not, not only is it not treated as the most important, it's not even treated as interesting. It doesn't hold people's interest. And yet the name interest is right in the name interest rates. Now, we talk sometimes about economic issues. Like I asked you about the trade surplus and you say, meh, right? Yeah, basically. Sure. Meh. Yeah. But our interest rates, Janet Yellen raising the rates, is that really as important as I think it is, even though it seems boring to people? It's the most important thing in the world. It literally is the most important thing in the world. It is. I, I was calling, I was doing a column and I talked to these economists in Turkey, South Africa and Brazil. All three countries are going through massive political dynamics. Uh, you know, Turkey's going through this awful refugee crisis. And I said, what, you know, all three said the same thing. The most important thing in the world to us right now that will affect the lives of people in Turkey, South Africa, and Brazil is what Janet Yellen, the chair of the Fed, does this year. That's the most important thing that has the biggest impact on our lives, how we feel. But I agree with you. Like, even I am constantly teetering on a knife's edge of complete boredom, even though I know it's unbelievably important. Is it because the interest rate we're talking about starts with a decimal point, 0.25? That doesn't say, I mean, Maybe. how can anything that's 0.25 anything affect my life? Maybe blood alcohol level if I drive out of here today. <laughs> Is that it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's engineered to be boring. It is designed to be boring. They, the whole idea is we have an economy that is built around uh, a very solid, uninteresting base. Don't look at the base. 
And then there's like fringy stuff on top. There's the stock market and venture capital and private equity and new companies and things that are exciting that can yeah. go up and fall. And But that base, you don't want to think too much about. You and as Megan Trainer said, it's all about the base. It's all about the yeah. base. Exactly. And what we <laughs> saw in 2008, what we saw when serious, sober-minded people were truly talking about the end of civilization. I was having calls with economists who have never said anything interesting in their life. And they were saying, oh, another week like this, I'm talking about like September 2008, yeah. another week like this, there won't be electricity in America. There won't be food distributed in America. We don't know if civilization is recoverable because of what was happening at the short-term interest rate level. Because of, point, because of the difference between zero and 0.25? Well, then it was more like the difference between zero and 500. I mean, it, okay. it was the, the rates were changing a lot. Okay. Yeah. So, so lay it out, though. You there know, was a tent. Yeah. Something's going to help us a lot. All right. Zoe Chase. Of course you will. Yeah. Where's Zoe? Yeah, Zoe. Mike back in studio. I will set the scene. Zoe Chase runs from the bar and throws herself onto the stage at this point. Hey, Zoe. What's up? Zoe Chase of Planet Money, but now of This American Life. But yes, yes. correct. Yeah. How can I help you guys? Well, I think that'd be helpful because we talk in studios with nobody there. How many people, I guess by sound, how, how many of you are actively thinking about the Fed and whether or not it'll raise interest rates? That's it. Like, yeah. All yeah. right. You are. This guy knows what The I'm person with about. the Wolverine yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of silence as well. So we thought we were trying to explain because it is, it is really boring. And it is also the most fascinating mass psychology experiment, can we say, in human history? Sure. Yeah. No I one's fact-checking so. us. Yeah. I got my certificate for the Boingo hotspot yeah. joke. I'm fine. You'll play the role of Janet Yellen? I'm happy to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that makes okay. a lot of sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And what were you telling me about Janet Yellen, about the stress she's under? Janet Yellen is surrounded by fear, and I really relate to this situation. <laughs> Everything that she does is governed by fear of this or fear of that, and what you may be thinking about what she's thinking. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. Right, that's like how our economy runs. Right, it's yeah. kind of like, oh, what do you think? I think I do think that, but I can't say right now. That's how she <laughs> right. works. So the technical thing is, Janet Yellen is the head of the Federal Open Markets Committee, which by default sets this rate for how much banks lend money to each other overnight. It's called the Fed Funds Rate. It sounds so weird and boring. Just every single day, every bank in the country at about 4 p.m. adds up all the money they have and all the money they owe. And some banks owe more than they have. Some banks have more than they owe. And they all lend it to each other from 4 p.m. till 8 a.m. the next morning. This happens every day, every bank in the country. And it's this really routine, boring thing. And the rate that they lend to each other, like you have a credit card rate, the rate they lend to each other is controlled by Fiat, by Janet Yellen, and the other members of the Federal Open Market Committee, the 12 people on the Federal Open Market Committee. This is still very exciting. Yes. <laughs> this is the whole world. Yes. Like it actually is. Yeah, so that number, the overnight lending number, vibrates out through the economy in ways that are not properly understood. Nobody fully understands. It has a much bigger effect than you would think if you do the math. But it impacts 
how much lending, how likely you are to be able to borrow money to open a business or buy a house. It, uh, when, when Janet Yellen suggests in a speech that she's possibly considering increasing the rate by 0.25 a few months earlier than she thought she was last time, countries like Turkey and much of Africa and uh, Latin America and emerging markets in Asia, money pours out of them, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars pours out of their markets and floods the U.S. market. Or you think that she's thinking that. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's how powerful she is. You can't maybe tell by this right here, but like as Janet Yellen, like I run everything. Yeah. <laughs> everything I run. Like your economy you win, your economy you lose. Yeah. So shall we show what okay. the tension she's dealing with? Yeah. All right. So you're Janet Yellen. Okay. Mike, you come over here. All right. So Can I be Ben Bernanke? Mm-hmm. No. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and to illustrate this point, what happened was Adam was on one side of Zoe and Adam was playing the role of low growth. And on the other side of Zoe, there I was, and I was playing the role of high inflation. Right. So hyperinflation, which, yes. (laughs) So that is, let's just call that the fear on the right. That is the fear that if Janet Yellen doesn't raise interest rates, if she doesn't increase interest rates, we're going to have out of control hyperinflation. So she wants to come this way, away from that. Okay. But then the way to do that is for her to raise interest rates to prevent hyperinflation. But then over here is the fear on the left, which is, which is, I am, I do have this fear. Like I'm yeah. on this side, by the way, personally. But yeah, yeah. that, so I'm uh, also there. That's yeah, why I'm yeah, like still here. Yeah. And Janet Yellen, Yellen is on this side. That yes. Yeah. Time. So on this side, the fear is if she, does raise interest rates, we will lose our jobs. Unemployment will increase, the economy will slow, and we will be in serious trouble. Low growth, okay, because the Fed has two jobs. One is to get as many people employed as possible, help employment. The other is to tame inflation. And these jobs are always in conflict. So basically, the Fed historically has just not paid attention to me. They yeah. haven't paid attention to the they jobs. Care they care inflation. about hyperinflation. Because the bankers care about hyperinflation and rich people care about hyper. So do regular people if it gets to, you know, 6 or 7%, like under Ford. But yeah, these that might days, be a little more have... political than I'd go. But yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Janet Yellen is a labor economist. There's never been a Fed chairman who's a labor economist. She cares deeply I would guess more about the unemployment issues. But what she she is stuck in this space. She has no room to maneuver because just as we've seen over the last years, just hinting that she's leaning in one direction or another sends billions of dollars hurtling one way or the other. So what she has been doing, and this is this amazing psychological experiment she's been conducting over the last year, is she's been trying to separate us and give her some room to move, some, some wiggle room to maybe raise interest rates a little bit without me freaking out. And then, if that doesn't go so well, lowering interest rates without Mike freaking out. I'm hyper. It's okay. But the way she does this is she needs to be thinking about... So how do, how do we explain this? Like, she has to think about how the market is going to think about... How, how they think about what she's thinking. About what they're thinking about what she's going to think about. Yeah. Right. And so... It's like any relationship between two people, but it's just one person and then everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. I got a couple questions. Yeah. So, she didn't raise interest rates 0.25. Everyone said 
She's going to do it the next time, pretty much. Is 0.25 matter, or is the only reason people care that 0.25 will be 0.5, will be 0.75? You know, it's the feeling. Like, it's the feeling. Like, it's like, it's like in a relationship if somebody's like, no, 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 like, I'm really committed to supporting you and, like, your growth and, like, you're going to do great, but I'm just going to move my, like, ring over from this side to this side. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's like that. Like, it's, it's, it's more of the feeling, and it's like, do people feel confident enough in the rest of their lives that Got they can it. handle that? Or are they just putting it all into this so, chick? But Adam, you think she has to raise interest rates eventually? Well, there's no way we can have zero interest rates forever. So right. eventually. But I think there's a lot of room to wait it well into next year. But what she wants to do is take away the potency of this moment. So I think she's doing two things. So you and I both have little kids. Yeah. And we both know that with a little kid... You can't just like you're playing and then, all right, it's tubby time. Yeah. You have to say like in a few minutes, Transitions. it's going to be tubby time. Yes. Right, we have to right. transition. Turn the so light we, off. Yeah. Sing a song. Sing a song. Read a up, book. Clean yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. And my son gets really into negotiating. I'll say two more minutes and he'll say right. four minutes. And then I realize he has no sense of time. So I'll just agree. By the way, so, I have this. Yeah. Let me interrupt you. <laughs> yeah. I have this idea for an app for parents, which is a fake stopwatch, which shows a minute as like 32 seconds, and then the kid will do it. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so but yeah. what she's trying to do is two things. She's trying to kind of prepare us all that she'll start doing stuff, but that what she's going to start doing is stuff that nobody has ever done before. So what she wants to do is rather than us all be thinking, oh my God, there's going to be one day and we're going to find out and she's either going to go left or right and then we're all going to die. She wants to say, and she has been communicating this, but it's amazing. It's speech by speech, shifting the adjectives ever so slightly to say, I'm going to do something. It's like a breakup, but like mm-hmm. a long, long relationship. Long breakup, yes. A long relationship. You're like... I'm just not feeling this thing, but we'll talk about it next time I see you. Like, it's kind of like that. All right. So by the time it happens, people have made preparations. Exactly. They've called their friends and they have gotten some loans from them. The best, so as you say, interest rates can't stay zero forever. And I think the most compelling argument I've heard for raising interest rates is some bad shit's gonna come down and the best lever they have is lowering interest rates. And guess what? If interest rates are zero, you can't lower them. Do you find that a compelling argument? Let's get them up to something so one day they can be lowered? No. No? Uh, no. I mean, I think eventually, sure. Yes, eventually, like, if if I go to sleep and I wake up in 50 years and they tell me, oh, interest rates are still zero, that would be a sign that we've had a very bad 50 years. You know, they should, and ultimately she'll want wiggle room. But she, I think what we need and what she's trying to create is a condition where the whole world isn't freaking out over her. And so actually, in a weird way, the, the argument for raising rates or one argument for raising rates is let's just get to the other side. Like, let's get beyond this constant conversation and then realize, oh, we're in a new world. Yes. Yes. It's like so many things. It's like gay marriage or it's like this thing that, oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe it's going to happen. Oh my God. Black president. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's like it happened. Hey, we're still here. This was something like at Planet Money, there's like a few things you go through when you 
joined the team of Planet Money mm-hmm. that we've all that noticed. You, like, you can't divulge the hazing ritual. Yeah, about but yeah. eventually, everybody, because we always hired like people who are great storytellers, but who didn't necessarily know much about economics or finance. And everybody went through this one phase where they're like, what the fuck is money? Money is so <laughs> weird. And another thing you go through is... It's made up. Oh, at the heart of our economy... It's like those first microseconds in the Big Bang. The heart of our economy is this fundamental mystery, and nobody knows. So literally, that overnight interest rate thing with the banks is the heart of our lives. That is the core number that determines how many jobs there are, how much prosperity there is, how money is distributed within our country and around the world. That is the core number, the guide of our life. And we actually don't know if it's like physics or engineering. Like, if, is it that that number, the larger it is, the less banks lend. And so as a result, it propagates in a very kind of physical way, in a sense, throughout the economy. Or is it just psychological is it just a feeling mm-hmm. that at the heart of our economy is just everybody has to think about one thing and the one thing they think about is what the chair of the fed is thinking about that one number thinking and about that th- argument is the stronger argument the at the heart of our economy at the heart of our way of life is this mystery about what we think about what Janet Yellen is thinking about what we think about Janet Yellen. It's all inside that woman's brain. Right there. <laughs> Shedding light on the mystery, right. pumping you. blood into our heart, Adam Davidson thank and you. Zoe Chase. Thank you guys so much. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi. Her interest rate's a seven, but that's seven basis points, which, as you know, is a lot less than a regular normal human seven. Sorry about that. Just executive producer Andy Bowers is within the margin of error, but without margarine or air horns. Random, but true. The gist, we're just like Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke and Alan Greenspan before her. We've got a brain for business, but a bod for sin. Um peru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.